Good afternoon. You're listening to KFSK. This is KFSK News for Monday, October 30th. I'm Hannah Floor. Kids from Petersburg competed in a marksmanship tournament in Juneau earlier this month. But as KFSK reports, the athletes involved in Petersburg's club are learning about more than just target shooting. Kids from around Alaska and parts of Washington gathered in Juneau for the 2023 9th Annual Southeast Fall Shoot Invitational. Becky Turland is a coach with Petersburg's Devil's Thumb Shooters and traveled to the event with 12 local athletes. It was 21 degrees, so it was freezing. But it's fun to watch these kids succeed and break clays and have smiles on their faces. The group promotes sportsmanship and competitive target shooting. It also aims to educate kids on firearm safety. Nearly 28,000 shots were fired during the tournament, but Turland says there were no injuries. Edelyn Turland is Becky's daughter. She's in sixth grade and has been participating for three years. She says the fact that they're firing shotguns makes it different from other sports. In shooting, if you mess around, it could really go wrong. So we have to be extra cautious. Her mom says that focus on safety creates another benefit, an increased maturity and sense of responsibility. You're shooting a gun and you're firing at clays, but it's more for these kids to build a self-confidence and a discipline that they're not usually used to. Turlin says marksmanship can be great for kids who have anxiety or hyperactivity. When they're there at the range, they're able to focus. The Devil's Thumb Shooters was established in 2014. It started as a small club with one certified coach. Now they have seven coaches and nearly two dozen athletes who practice one to two times a week at the shooting range, located about 13 miles south of town. And last year, the club got a grant from the Petersburg Community Foundation. It paid for materials to build what's called a five-stand, a covered area for the kids to stand in while they shoot. Rainforest Contracting donated the labor to build the stand, and that means they're able to practice more often in all kinds of weather. Some of the club's new shooters competed in Juneau last weekend. Eighth grader Madeline Dreisbaugh won third place in intermediate ladies' sporting clay. I was like, oh, I got a medal, and then I walked up there, and I came back, and I was like, so happy. Other wins include Edelyn Turland, who took first in all disciplines for female novice, and Hannah Slavin, who took first in all disciplines for female JV. Liam Mattingly competed in men's novice and brought back second in trap and wobbles, and first in double trap and high all around. The Devil's Thumb Shooters won't practice again until spring, when they'll start preparing for the Alaska Yes State Championship in Anchorage. In Petersburg, I'm Hannah Floor. And the group will receive a portion of the money made at statewide Friends of the NRA fundraiser dinners. Petersburg will hold a Friends of the NRA dinner on Saturday, November 4th, at the Elks Ballroom. This month, Governor Dunleavy's Energy Security Task Force released a draft of their statewide energy plan. The draft lays out some broad intentions to bring more renewable energy to the state but it also calls for the controversial Alaska LNG pipeline. That's disappointed climate activists and renewable energy advocates. Anna Canny reports from Juneau. Energy plan breaks down strategies to upgrade energy for three major regions in Alaska, rural communities, the coasts, and the rail belt. Energy policy analyst Ben Becker with Cook Inlet Keeper said the plan takes a broad approach. It was kind of a large collection of every energy idea anyone's ever had for the past 10 years in one document. There are mentions of micronuclear and renewables like wind, solar, and tidal power. 
but the only specific projects are proposals that have long been criticized by renewable energy advocates. The document calls for revisiting long-discussed mega-projects, like the Susitna Dam and the Alaska Liquid Natural Gas Pipeline, also known as the AKLNG project. The proposed 800-mile pipeline would run from the North Slope to the Cook Inlet. Activist Arlie Hitchcock with Fairbanks Climate Coalition said it would be a carbon bomb emitting a massive amount of greenhouse gases that cause climate change. We need to move away from natural gas, uh, still fossil fuel, and a limited resource and unreliable. The draft plan claims that bringing the pipeline to fruition would be good for rail belt utilities, which rely almost entirely on natural gas from Cook Inlet. Cook Inlet supplies could run short before the end of the decade. But the project also has a $40 billion price tag. And to build it, Alaska would have to sell some gas leases to buyers outside of the state, mostly in Asia. No buyers have come forward yet. Critics say the project is not financially feasible. And it's not clear how much of the hypothetical gas supply from the AKLNG would be sold to Alaskans. Hitchcock said the draft plan's focus on the AKLNG and other natural gas prospects was disappointing. It would have been nice to have seen the task force come out with some real solutions, some renewable energy solutions, instead of continuing the same extractive model for the state that isn't working. The draft plan does lay out broad intentions to promote renewable energy projects, things like workforce development and recruitment, new financing options for renewable projects, and more money towards the state's existing renewable energy fund. The plan also calls for the adoption of a clean energy standard, Early on, the task force considered a renewable energy standard instead. That would have set enforceable targets and deadlines for utilities to incorporate more sustainable energy like solar and wind power. A clean energy standard, which the task force ultimately endorsed, is incentive-based with looser terms. It's too early to tell if these suggestions will do much to increase the amount of renewable energy in the state. But Becker, with Cook Inlet Keeper, said the recommendations in the draft plan could motivate lawmakers. This is going to be influential in the legislature. I expect it'll definitely help elevate these issues, but as for solving them, it's not a solution in itself. None of the draft plan's proposals are hard commitments yet. And notably, in nearly 150 pages of proposed renewable energy strategies, the report only mentions climate change once. In Juneau, I'm Anna Canny. It was an emotional day at the Alaska Native Heritage Center where the U.S. Interior Secretary spent the day listening to Native boarding school survivors. He also helped to raise a healing totem pole made by two Haida brothers in honor of the survivors and their families. Before it went up, she joined others as they waved boughs of cedar over the pole to bless it. As Rhonda McBride reports from Anchorage, it followed a very difficult day. As a note of disclosure, this story contains references to abuse and sexual assault. Interior Secretary Deb Holland told the gathering her name in Karis is Crush Turquoise. She says her family's knowledge of their language fractured after a priest took her grandmother away at the age of eight on a train to a Catholic boarding school. There, she was punished for speaking Karis and quit using it, so it wasn't passed on. Today, Holland says she understands some of the language, but can't speak it. This is the first time in history that a United States cabinet secretary comes to the table with the same trauma that all of you have. 
This is the 10th stop on the Secretary's Road to Healing Tour. And as she travels across the country, she hopes to create a permanent oral history of boarding school abuse. But more important, she wants to develop programs to help survivors and their families. I want you all to know that I'm with you on this journey. I will listen, I will grieve with you, I will weep, and I will feel your pain. Many of these children were as young as five years old. Jim LaBelle was the first to share his story. He was only eight years old when the government took him away from his mother, along with his younger brother, Kermit. When LaBelle was sent to the Wrangell Institute in 1955, he was bilingual. I quickly shut down my my Inupac side because I saw so many of my fellow uh, students beaten in so many different ways. There was the gauntlet in which a naked child would be forced to run past a row of kids who lined up to strike them with their belts. And if they didn't hit hard enough, they would be punished too. We just didn't do it once. We did it many times. And a lot of times that drew blood on our bodies. LaBelle says the matrons used a paddle known as a cat of nine tails, which had holes that would leave blood blisters. There were also shaming tactics. When children were caught speaking their native language, they were forced to wear cone-shaped hats labeled with the word dunce. But LaBelle says that wasn't the worst of it. Matrons were sodomizing boys in their beds or in the bathrooms. We saw girls going home in the middle of the school year uh, pregnant. And a lot of these kids were like 11, 12, 13 years old. LaBelle says the kids knew what was going on, but never told anyone. Dark secrets, which took a huge emotional toll. Even 20 years ago, LaBelle says people didn't see the relationship between boarding schools and trauma. That's why he began to share his story, to help people like Martha Sanungatuck connect the dots. And a lot of trauma is, is carried on from one generation to the next. And that's what happened in my family. Sanangatek says this was never talked about in her family, and yet... Some people became alcoholics. There was domestic violence in the family and not knowing how to raise your children because no one ever taught you. Grandma didn't learn how to raise children in a boarding school. At the end of the day, hundreds of people gathered to watch a totem pole rise up in what could be the first healing totem in the nation to honor Native boarding school survivors. Alaska had 21 Native boarding schools, yet they have touched almost every Alaska Native. Jim LaBelle, who started sharing his stories at a time when they were met with skepticism, even disbelief, says the totem pole represents the power of people standing up and telling their truth. In Anchorage, I'm Rhonda McBride. With Israeli hostages still in captivity and the death toll in Gaza rising, Alaska's congressional delegation is staying in Israel's corner. Congresswoman Mary Paltola voted last week for a House resolution condemning the Hamas attack and backing Israel's right to defend itself. It passed overwhelmingly with only a handful of Democrats and one Republican voting no. 
Senator Dan Sullivan has been especially outspoken. He and other senators were in Tel Aviv Sunday and held a press conference. This is a very sobering day, meeting with the families of the hostages, seeing videos that I actually think the whole world should see of the just severe brutality and viciousness and evil. He was speaking of the October 7th Hamas attack, which killed more than 1,400 people in Israel, most of them civilians. Israel has stepped up its bombardment of Gaza, killing thousands as it attempts to abolish Hamas. Sullivan says the difference is that Hamas intended to kill civilians. There's no moral equivalence. Every civilian death in a war is horrible. But what we're seeing and what we saw with regard to Hamas was an attempt to actually make more civilian deaths as bloody and vicious as possible. The Hamas-run Ministry of Health says more than 7,000 people have been killed in Gaza, but the U.S. says it can't verify that number. On October 20th, more than 120 countries voted for a United Nations resolution seeking a humanitarian ceasefire. The United States, Israel, and a dozen other countries voted no. The Juno Assembly has approved a 9% increase to all docks and harbor fees starting in January. Port Director Carl Yucatel told the Assembly last Monday that it will help the Docks and Harbors Board maintain facilities and put more money into savings. We have about a quarter billion, quarter billion dollars in infrastructure, and we only have about $3.7 million in savings. He said savings are important for grant applications, which often ask applicants to commit some of their own funding. Docks serve cruise ships, and harbors serve fishing and recreational boats. For the most part, both docks and harbors have brought in more revenue than they've spent during the last several years. The only exception was during the pandemic, when COVID led to a loss in revenue for the docks. Local fishermen argued that the increase should only apply to cruise lines that use the docks, not locals who use the harbor. Shane Krause lives on his boat. I do support raising the docks fees paid by tourism and foreign cruise ship lines. They take too much from Juneau and they need to start giving back more. I am here to speak out against raising the harbor's rates that affect local boaters and locally owned businesses. Docks and Harbor Board previously considered doubling the monthly fees just for liverboards, but they never sent it to the Assembly for approval. Yukuchel said the 9% increase to all fees was the fairest option. Assemblymember Wade Bryson said there's no easy way to increase the revenue right now. I don't think that we've talked about raising a single price tag in any city function that hasn't been met with opposition. The rate increase passed in a 5-4 to vote. Almost all fees will go up by 9% in January. Monthly mortgage fees will go up 3% each year for the next three years. For KFSK, I'm Hannah Floor.